everyone. Thank you for tuning in to One Real Self, a podcast embracing diversity and the journey to self-discovery, love, and growth. I'm Joyce. And I'm Callie. And welcome to today's episode. Today, our special guest is Jessica Zito VH. Jessica is currently the VP Group Account Director at a digital and creative marketing agency based in San Francisco. Originally from the East Coast, Jessica spent her earlier years in Boston and New York majoring in marketing and then moving to Manhattan to work in fashion before making a life-changing decision to uproot her life and move to Asia. After four years, she decided to move back to California And now San Francisco has been her home for the past seven years. Recently, Jessica has become more involved in amplification of AAPI experience and has spoken on panel discussions with her colleagues about AAPI experiences. Welcome, Jessica. Hi, Jessica. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm really excited to be here with you guys. We're super excited to have you here. Yeah, thank you. And today for all our listeners, we're going to amplify another API story um, and talk about further on what it was like growing up as an Asian American. Um, And we're really happy to have Jess here today because Jess, I know that you are also very passionate about DEI um, and also, you know, sharing more of our stories so that um, more people can, you know, relate to and hear about API heritage. Yeah, absolutely. To start off, do you mind giving us a little fun fact about yourself? Yes, sure. So um, these fun fact questions always get me because I don't know where to start, but (laughs) I would say um, a fun fact about me is that I moved to Hong Kong in my mid twenties. Oh. Um, without knowing a soul. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. That's really, you, you were really brave. Yes. Yes. Um, I don't know what I was thinking at the time. No, I think at the time I realized that you don't get these kind of opportunities often um, and that you have to jump on them when you do. And they're life-changing, but they're usually life-changing in a good way. So yeah, I, I got a job offer um, to move out to Hong Kong to start up a social media team on a global marketing team out there that was based in Hong Kong. And I got it. And yeah, three months later, I had moved out there, got an apartment, started my job. Yeah, it was uh, crazy, but really the some of the most amazing experiences of my life. So, whoa, how long were you there for? Um, so I intended to only move for about a year. That's kind of what I told my parents, like, (laughs) Hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna move to, to Asia, um, to Hong Kong. And they were kind of really shocked about that. They were like, wait, we put in all this effort to move to the United States to give you guys a better life. And now you want to move back to Asia, um, and be so far away from me. But I said, no, I'm just going to go for about a year. I just want to experience it, see what it's like. And then I'll come back. I ended up staying for a little, I think, or close to four years. Um, Four years yeah. before I actually moved back because I fell in love with it. Hong Kong is just an amazing place. The people there, the culture, the food, also the fact that Hong Kong is such a hub to so many other countries that I really hadn't taken the time to visit. I did while I was there, you know, so I made a lot of trips to the Philippines and Thailand and Korea and Japan and Taiwan and Um, Malaysia and Bali and and all these amazing places that I don't think I otherwise would have been able to get to in such a short period of time. That's awesome. Yeah, 
Do yeah, you also speak really the fun. language too? Or were you able to navigate around with English? So you can absolutely navigate around in English in Hong Kong specifically. There is a huge expat community that lives there. However, I was lucky because my parents speak both Cantonese and Mandarin at home. So I, I was able to understand a lot of the Cantonese. I wouldn't say that it was great, but it improved significantly while I was there to the point where when I would have conversations with my mom in Cantonese on the phone, she was like amazed by all the words that I could say <laughs> in, in Cantonese. Um, so that did a lot of wonders for me. And um, so it was, it was really fun. Yeah. yeah and that's I think what... maybe that was part of why I didn't feel as intimidated moving there was because I did have a little bit of the language behind me that I knew I could lean on. Love it. Yeah, that was uh, my experience too. When I went to Hong Kong for just a month for a family trip, I realized that my Cantonese got so much better. Um, and because I was speaking it every day consistently, um, when I came back to the US, like there were some points where I was trying, like I, I was speaking Cantonese when I was trying to speak English with my <laughs> friends. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I I felt like after a while of living there, my English started to deteriorate a little bit, actually. Just the way that yes. I would form sentences was not as grammatically correct. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, it's strange kind of how living in another country really impacts even your native language significantly. My husband, I think, experiences that now because he's originally from Copenhagen. So he's from like Danish descent. And now that he's been living here for the past seven years, he even tells me sometimes he's like, he's like, how do you say this in English? And I tell him, and I'm like, well, how do you say it in Danish? He's like, well, I don't, I can't even remember now. You know, <laughs> He's just lived here for so long um, that it's kind of impacted his language too. So, oh no. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's crazy how that happens. Okay, Jessica. So now we want to learn more about you. So can you talk a little bit about your background, your upbringing um, and what was it like growing up? Yes. So I can start maybe a little bit just about my background and feel free to just chime in if you guys have any questions. So I culturally, my background is Chinese Taiwanese. My dad is originally from China. Um, my mom is originally from Taiwan and they got married and immigrated here into Boston in the late 1970s. So both my sister and I were born here and grew up um, on the East coast. Um, I have an older sister. She's two years older than me. I think that our household upbringing was pretty traditional for a, a Chinese kind of household. Both of my parents were full-time working parents. My dad actually worked in the restaurant business and he actually supported my mom when she moved here so that she could take English classes and learn English wow. um, so that she could actually get a better job. So she did that. She um, moved into kind of like accounting finance type roles at, at different companies um, which was a much better opportunity for her than, than what he had, I think, growing up and, and living in the U.S. And, you know, I think that we kind of grew up as like a sort of very middle income household in that sense. Definitely, I think we were poor when we were younger, but it's funny because when you look back, like I don't remember not having anything, um, but I also don't feel like I had the extra stuff, like all the, all the additional things, but I didn't need it, I guess, as a kid. Um, cause I never found myself wanting something that I didn't have. Wow. Um, yeah. And, and that's why, um, I speak both Cantonese and Mandarin, both my parents kind of spoke those languages at home. And so that's what my sister and I sort of grew up with. My dad still doesn't speak a lot of English, 
um, he speaks several different dialects of Chinese. Wow. Um, so I remember going to like Chinatown and he could speak to people in Mandarin, Cantonese, Taiwanese, like Fukanese, like he knows several different dialects. Um, mm. So as I grew older, I realized that it wasn't that he had this deficit of not knowing English, like he was speaking multiple languages. He was very <laughs> language adept, um, but that was just like the community that he had assimilated to and, and grew up and just had around him at the time. So was Mandarin Cantonese your first language? Yes, it was. So those are my first languages, but I did start going to daycare since I was a baby practically. And one of the funny stories that my mom loves to remind me of is she went to go pick me up from my daycare. And she said that one of the teachers gave her an update on me and said, oh, you know, Jessica's doing really well. She's now speaking in full sentences. And my mom was like, who? And they were like, Jessica, your daughter. And she's like, no, my daughter doesn't speak any English. Like, yes, <laughs> yes, she does. And um, she was like, really? And cause I just, I think I learned to compartmentalize it all and didn't use it at home because that's not really what everyone at home was speaking. Wow. And so um, my, my mom actually, she remembers taking me to the pediatrician and was like, are you sure my daughter's gonna be okay? Cause there's like all these languages coming at her. And you know, they say that she's speaking a lot of English at school and I haven't heard it yet. Um, and the doctor was like, oh no, she's a sponge. Like <laughs> as, as much as you can throw at her, you should be and, and you don't have to worry about it. So that's when my parents realized like, okay, it's fine for me to continue to speak to her in our, you know, native tongue and what we're comfortable in speaking with. And she'll be fine learning English in school and through her friends and communities and other things like that, which has totally been the case. Wow. So when did you debut your English speaking to your parents, Sam? I think probably as I got into like preschool and kindergarten, because my mom said that I would sing a lot of songs that my sister learned at school. Oh. Um, and so she was like, you are really big on picking up songs. And she's like, I think that's a huge testament to learning other languages too, is when you can kind of sing the songs in those languages. Mm -hmm. um, and so she's like, very quickly, you were, you were learning the language that way and expressing it to me at home too. Oh, that's great. That's yeah. Great. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious too. Um, so I grew up in the West coast um, and Callie, she lived in New York and also in Canada. I sometimes hear about, you know, growing up as an Asian American in a different coast, it, there's like subtle differences. And so do you feel like that's the case growing up in Boston? And if that is like, what were some of those subtle differences? I would say there probably are. I mean, to be honest, since being in San Francisco, I have felt probably a bigger sense of belonging um, just because of the representation of the Asian community that I see around me. Um, in Boston growing up, I would say there is a big Asian community as well in Boston, but it's, it's in these pockets. So, um, I grew up in the South end, which is like a little neighborhood in Boston and where I grew up that street in that neighborhood, there were a lot of other Chinese families. Cause there were actually a lot of immigrants that had moved here that were kind of doing similar things to what my parents were doing. And so, um, growing up there, I very much felt like I could connect and there were other kids that looked like me and talked like me. But when I was around eight, I think I moved to the suburbs. So I moved to a suburb of Boston. And I feel like that is actually when there was a big shift for me in terms of my experiences as an Asian American growing up in Boston. And what I would say is it, it started to feel very homogenous 
the communities that I would spend my time in or growing up with. And also that's kind of where I first got, I think, my real taste and experience of racism towards me, both in in overt ways and in microaggressions. Um, my sister experienced a lot of those things as well. And we talk about that now as adults. And it's it's very telling considering how vivid those experiences are for us, how much they've really impacted us and our upbringing. So I would say that has been big. And not to say that people on the West Coast haven't experienced it as well, because I'm sure that they have. But I know from a couple of the friends that I've talked to, I've almost been shocked when they tell me they haven't experienced any kind of racism. So I've, I've had like one or two friends who are like, yeah, no, I haven't experienced it. And I was like, what? what? And they were like, yeah, I don't know, maybe because I grew up in San Francisco. And I was like, no <gasps> way. But that that is what they told me. So, whoa. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's good for them that it never yeah. experienced. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. I, I know in San Francisco, there are pockets too, where there's more Asian people. I yeah. grew up in a suburb in the Bay Area where it was, I remember going to preschool as predominantly white. I remember, you know, being the outlier in preschool because of the way that I looked because I, you know, I wore clothes that my parents gave me from China and I didn't speak the language too. So that added another layer of awkwardness (laughs) and just also not being able to uh, make friends that uh, looked different and also spoke a different language than me. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it all kind of feeds into it. I remember one of my first experiences of racism was when I was probably like, you know, eight or nine years old. And I just was finishing dinner and went with my mom for like an after dinner, you know, walk around the neighborhood kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And we walked past these kids and they started calling us all these racial slurs and mocking our language and all these things. And We just kind of quickly walked past them and went home. And I just remember feeling like it was such a foreign feeling for me. And I felt like such a punch in the gut almost when they started saying all those things to to me and my mom. And um, I remember just internalizing it as well, like not expressing it, not talking to my mom about it. Um, I don't remember even my mom talking to me about it which when I kind of do some reflection, I think is a bit interesting. Um, And I think it's kind of part of the way that I was brought up was to not really talk about these situations, to not give them weight, was to not also have a response that could potentially put me in danger, um, which is probably why my mom didn't have a response or reaction to those kids. But I think that that is something that is part of why I probably haven't talked a lot about that topic to even my friends until more recently, because even as a kid growing up, we just were never taught to speak up when someone was being mistreated, even if that person was ourselves. That says a lot about our community and why it's taken us so long to kind of localize, I think, our experiences. Yeah. And what I've been hearing too is immigrating to the U.S. for our parents, it it felt like the American dream. And for a lot of these instances, I've heard people say, well, we don't want to speak up because, you know, we're proud to be American. Like we don't want to like cause anything. We don't want to make a scene. Like we're lucky to be here. But it makes me so sad to just hear about, you know, these occurrences and for us to brush it aside. I feel like now there's this movement that's going on where 
for our generation, like, no, we're not going to deal with this bullshit, you know, like we're going to push, we're going to speak up. We're not going to be a bystander and we are American. People shouldn't be thinking of thinking of us any differently. No, no. And I think that kind of um, speaks to a lot of probably the microaggressions that we felt growing up as well, that I think sometimes people don't realize really hurts us is, you know, one of those things around, um, I'm sure you guys got this a lot too growing up, but I got a lot of the, where are you from? You know, no, where are you really from? Like with Mm. this almost disbelief that we could be from here, born here, just as American as they are. And, And that really just is a terrible microaggression because it really just divides us, you know? Um, And it also puts this assumption that because we're Asian and we're not white, that we can't be from here, that we can't have had ancestors that were from here, born here. Um, Or they say things like, oh, your English is good. Yeah. Yeah. Why is your English so good? (laughs) So annoying. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe I learned it. I learned it the same way you did. Yeah. 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 I've, I've experienced a lot of that growing up as well. So let's go back a little bit. So earlier you mentioned a microaggression, right? Do you mind explaining a little bit about what microaggressions are and like, how are they harmful? Yeah. I mean, so for me, microaggressions are just any form of communication that I think has any type of hostile, negative, derogatory type of tone or insinuation with it that's that's a stigma towards like a specific type of group when I was little definitely kids in my class used to think oh Jess is good at math because she's Asian so apparently because I'm Asian I have to be good at math (laughs) Um, or you know as when I got to my teenage years like Jess can't be a good driver because she's Asian you know Um, so it's like the good stereotypes the bad stereotypes like it's all these kind of like microaggressions um, I definitely got the, where are you from? Why is your English so good? Um, and the reason why I think these things are harmful is because it really buckets us into one type of group, one type of people. Whereas like the reality is, is, you know, the Asian um, Pacific Islander community is made up of what, over 40 different countries. We speak over 300 different languages. And I think when you make these assumptions that Asians are quiet, obedient, don't cause trouble, keep their head down, I think it's really harmful because we're not all that way and we should not be stereotyped that way. Like some of us are extroverted, some of us are introverted. And I think, and I've experienced this with other Asian friends who maybe don't fit that necessary stereotype and and how much they have felt as outliers with others and even within their own, you know, API community that we need to take down because those kind of stereotypes are just hurting us. Like we should be inclusive of us looking all different kinds of ways, having all different shades, being of all different types of sizes. Um, and, and, and that's the only way that we can really get through it together. I think, um, is just kind of breaking down those microaggressions. Yeah. I, I don't know why I just suddenly thought of this memory, but for an, for a Chinese American, for me, I am considered very tall. I am, you know, five, seven. And so I remember taking pictures of 
my other friends when I was little and I was the tallest in the group. And I felt so weird because I was just like, I I remember putting pressure on myself saying, I wish I was five one. Like I wish I was five two. So I didn't look different. Like I was so insecure about my height when I was little because I wasn't what, you know, Asian beauty standards or what people assumed Asian girls to be like. So I remember like giving myself a hard time for being tall. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was the same way. I'm also tall, taller. Um, I'm five, six. And so is my sister. She's, or she's almost five, seven actually, but we were kind of like that. We never fit that stereotypical mold of, you know, a petite, Asian girl or whatever. I don't know what people have as expectations, but we didn't fit that mold. And people, people always thought of us as being a lot taller. And I, and I look back at some old photos and I'm like, why am I so like hunched? You know, it's like, I'm purposely trying to shrink myself when I shouldn't. And I also, one of my best friends, she's actually six feet tall, her, and she has two other brothers who are over six feet tall and they're all, you know, hundred percent Asian and, and she's gorgeous. And she is actually a great example of someone who I've seen really grow into like appreciating her height and celebrating um, how she looks. But for her, I know we've talked about it a lot before. Um, and that has been very challenging for her, even within the Asian community of, of her height. And why should it be? Like, wh- why does that need to be something that people constantly discuss with her? You know, she can't control her height. Her height is her height yeah. <laughs> and, and it shouldn't matter, right? Yeah, I remember like doing squats when I took pictures <laughs> with my friends and it was so noticeable <laughs> when I was little. I'm just trying to be the same height as everyone else. But I love how you touch on that point where, you know, having these microaggressions is dangerous and we should all, you know, appreciate what we are given. And like it does play into the part where we're like, we all have different sizes like we don't have to fit a certain mold if we're Asian so yeah um, I I really like that and I think it's dangerous because sometimes people say it without thinking too much about it and so they feel like oh I'm not being racist but they are saying things that are microaggressions that do have that impact of stereotyping us in a certain way that we all need to stop. And the only way we can stop that is by really addressing it and just not just ignoring it, right? Is to saying like, hey, don't say that about me because I'm Asian. You know, I can be this way because this is just who I am as a person, as an individual. So I recently uh, went on a trip to Hawaii and there was a sign that talked about celebrating diversity and how there was representation from the Philippines, from Vietnam, from China, from Japan. And that was the first time in a long time that I saw, you know, diversity and not having like just Asians being seen as a monolithic um, culture. And so I just found that fascinating, like, um, and like how, you know, for Asian culture, like, we are made up of like 40 different, like a lot of different countries and cultures. And we're not just one monolithic group. Yes. We're so different and we look so different. We act so different. And I don't think that people realize that Asia and Asian countries like span really the gamut of different countries and ways of thinking and cultural values. And so we, we cannot continue to kind of think that all Asians are, are Chinese or that we're, you know what I mean? Like they just can't always assume that. 
Yeah, and I have a friend who told me that being called an Asian American is very Western way of grouping us into one thing because we're not just Asian American. We're more than that. We're Cantonese American. We're Taiwanese American. We are Filipino American. There's a lot more than just Asian American, and so it's very important for us to address that. Yeah, absolutely. And I also want to go back really quickly. So we mentioned microaggression as well. Like, how do you address microaggressions like in a work environment? Like, did you ever find it difficult doing that? Because I know there are people that I know, and sometimes I also experience that, and I don't know how to address it. Do you have any advice on that? I think the the best thing that we can do is be just really transparent about how it's received and why it's inappropriate. Kind of going back to my earlier thinking. Is that I don't truly believe that everyone says these things with malintent or ill intent. Um, however, I don't think that they always know that it is hurtful and that it kind of buckets us all together as this one type of person. And so I do think it's important to communicate that and address that in a really open dialogue with your colleagues. And because the more you kind of sit with that and ignore it, the more you allow it to continue to go on. Um, and it can go on because they just don't realize that that is offensive when it is. Going back to the fact that all three of us have heard the "Where are you from?" and "No, where are you really from?" you know, questions so many times that at some point you can probably become a bit numb to it. But it's important for us to not ignore those comments and say, "I'm from here. I am American." When you ask me where I'm from, I've told you where I'm from. There is no other place than what I just said, and I know that can just seem like that person doesn't even deserve, you know, your time to to articulate that. But uh, you know, we have to. We have to continue to correct people and communicate when. There are microaggressions um, that are being communicated towards us. I think when you mentioned how we sometimes we get numb, and I have to say I relate to that so much because sometimes I hear these kind of questions and I just roll my eyes. I don't even want to answer this, but I yeah. don't feel like explaining why it's not okay because I don't want to sound like a broken record, just repeating the same thing over and over again. Yeah, and sometimes you don't want to give. Weight to those people as well. So I think it depends on like the circumstance and the situation. I remember my best friend and I when we were in college, we won this trip to Florida. We went to Miami. We were checking into a hotel, and the person who was checking us in asked us if we were going to go upstairs and fry some rice in our what in our walks. And I wait, said, wait, what? Yes, yes. You did not say that. They said that. They genuinely asked us that, and my best friend and I, she's she's also Asian. Um, we just looked at each other and was like, "What?" And and they kind of laughed it off like it was a joke. But these are real things that people mm. have said to us, Mm-mm. still say to us, and you know, regardless of if you find it funny or ridiculous or not, like this is reality. People think that they can just say anything, and it can be wildly inappropriate and offensive um, as it was in this case. Um, There was also a time where a guy came up to us at a bar when we were living in Manhattan and he was trying to, I think, be funny and maybe have a joke, but he said, hey, you know, why do all of you people look like this? And he put his fingers to to his eyes and then pulled them back. No! And then started laughing and thought that that was a funny way to enter the conversation. I have no idea, but we were so extremely offended by it. We just, we could barely 
have words to express how offended we were by it. But it's all different kinds of experiences that we've had that we continue to have that are just not okay. They're just not okay. And they've been from all different types of people, not just one type of person. It's sad. It's really sad. Yeah. I remember going to Barcelona for a solo trip um, and I had made a friend um, through a cooking class and we ended up going uh, club hopping like at night. And I remember being the only Asian person that was there at like the bars and the clubs. And I remember, you know, in the middle of the night, there was a guy who walked up to me who also pulled his eyes so that he looked Asian. And he started laughing, try to mimic like what he thought Mandarin or Cantonese sounded like. And, you know, it was overly offensive. And being the only person, Asian person that was in the club at the time, like I didn't know how to respond to it. Yeah. yeah. And, and I hope that that is something we can talk more about with like our friends and our families and stuff, because I do want our community to feel more empowered, to be able to speak up for ourselves and to say, Mm -hmm. Hey, don't talk to me that way. Hey, that was really rude. What you just did. Hey, you offended me. You know, like we don't even say that. Like, we're just like in shock and we almost just walk away from it, but it's not acceptable. And we should be doing more to discourage that type of rude, offensive behavior and communication. Yeah. But I also have to say sometimes when I get angry and then say things like that, like, Hey, that's not okay. Hey, you shouldn't say that. They just start labeling me as like that angry Asian girl. It's just kind of frustrating because why do you have to keep doing this? I'm telling you it's not okay. You don't want to listen. And then you call me angry. But like, of course I'm angry because you're being so disrespectful. Yeah. It's this never ending battle. And this is why I have also so much empathy for the black community as well. And and all the other communities of color, because they have also just, they're so tired and frustrated from experiencing these forms of microaggressions over and and over, right? Like it's just been for so long, for so many years, it's impacted their whole community. And I empathize so much with it because it is also something that we have struggled with, all of us in many ways, regardless of if we've reported it or told somebody about it, it's been happening. Um, So even when there are like these small forms of it, I, I really think it's important that we do report these kind of incidents more and more. Um, You know, my, something recently happened with my parents where um, a dead animal was put in front of their doorstep and it it has, it was happened recently. It's, it's been during this whole surge of, of hate crimes against the API community. And it really, really scared them. And they called the police, tried to report it. And the police officer that came didn't want to report it said that it wasn't considered a hate crime because there was like no proof and all this kind of stuff. And it could have just been an animal that died of natural causes right in front of their doorstep, even though they've lived there for 30 years and that's never happened before. Mm. And so um, I'm really proud of my parents because they actually stood up for themselves and said, hey, I'm reporting this now because if something else happens to me down the road, I want there to be some type of history and for it to be noted that there was a pattern that I was being antagonized in some way or being discriminated against. And only after they said that and pushed back, did the police officer then say, okay, fine, give me your license and ID and I'll, and I'll take it and write it down and file the. the Good for your parents for pushing for that. That's very important because 
if you don't have record, then knock on wood, if anything happens, they have record of that. You know, it's very important, but also like a very sad reality. Mm-hmm. Isn't that a sad reality though? Like so if sad. something happened to your parents and like, don't you want them to feel like they have a voice that they should feel like they can and that they should report these things so that when you read in the news that there's been 150% increase in hate crimes against Asians, that that's the truth and not even like, uh, that's probably not even a realistic number for us because of the number of incidents that aren't getting reported yep. um, or being talked about in the news. Yep. Because I think a lot of Asian Americans, they don't like to say anything. They keep it quiet. They don't want to bother or sometimes want to tell the police because they don't have this trust with police. Mm-hmm. And so I can only imagine how many more cases that have not been reported yet. Exactly. Yeah. What I liked about what your parents did too was that they pushed back when mm-hmm. the police told them no, which is like important lesson too, where it's just like, if someone tells you no, you know that you're doing the right thing, Mm -hmm. push back and fight for it. Yeah, exactly. And I want all of us to kind of take that with us and think more about that. Cause I think a lot of times, especially from authority, you don't want to push back because you're like, they're supposed to be right. They're supposed to know, but if you know, and it's in your gut that you're like, no, this was wrong. This is not normal. This is not right. That you say something, you know, that you kind of express that. Um, I think is is really, really important. I want to go back to like the topic of, you know, representation. Um, and Jess, I, I know that you have kids uh, who have multiple ethnicities. Yeah. And I liked how we touch on the topic of how, you know, microaggressions are very harmful. We don't just have one identity or passing stereotypes on an individual is very it's hard because you, they then they feel like they have to mold themselves to that certain identity when they're already placed in it. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, now raising kids yourself, like what are things that you think about and what have you been seeing when it comes to representation? I'm still fairly new to it, but um, just for reference, my kids are three and one. So they're, they're still very, very little. What I am trying to do now at their current age is really just celebrate their cultural differences and celebrate the different backgrounds that they have. Like I want them to celebrate their Americanness, you know, on the 4th of July. I want them to celebrate their Asian-ness on Chinese New Year. You know, I want them to celebrate their Danishness. We've we've flown back to Copenhagen as babies. Um, they love to eat rye bread and, and, and eat the food there. We FaceTime often with their grandparents and relatives there. Um, and they know them as like Famo and Fafa, which is like grandma and grandpa in Danish. And so we really try to infuse through language, um, through culture, through food, through a lot of travel. Um, my three-year-old has also gone to Hong Kong. He's also been to Singapore. Like he really is a world traveler pre-pandemic. <laughs> uh, and, and that was not by accident. Uh, my husband and I are big believers in having our kids sort of be like global citizens. Like we want them to know that the world is just much, much bigger than just California or the US. That's really important um, for them to see the world as, as big as it is and for them to know that they're their ancestors have come from all different countries and that's what makes up who they are. And I want them to celebrate all those things about them because that's what makes those two each their own unique individuals, right? Because nobody else is exactly like them. And I just want them to appreciate that. Like I want them to appreciate making dumplings with their popo 
um, when she comes to visit or getting like Lysi, like the lucky red envelopes for Chinese New Year. And like I did a Zoom call with their preschool and kind of taught them all about Chinese New Year. And we practiced some of the sayings. And then, you know, my son came home and like all for the next month, he would just say, Gong hei fa zai, gong hei fa. <laughs> and, um, I was like, you're not getting another lucky red envelope. Like, that's it, buddy. <laughs> Chinese New Year is over. But, you know, I just want him to know that it's a cool, it's a great thing to, to have these traditions, to have these different cultures that you get to experience. And he sees all the decorations that we hang up around Chinese New Year and things like that. And we always put up like the Danish flag because it's, it's something that they do in their cultures. They always have their flag represented during birthdays and things like that. So we have the Danish banner and flags um, being strung out on their birthdays and stuff like that. So we try to, I think, one, celebrate all the different cultures that, that they can identify with and, and I want them to identify with. Another really big thing for me about representation is, is seeing that through books, through, through children's books. So, and I learned this through my sister, who is actually a teacher. Um, she's a fourth grade teacher in New Jersey. She has three kids and she's just been sharing with me so many new books that have come out recently that um, highlight Asian characters as the main character in a lot of stories. And I haven't seen that a lot in the stories that I've read to my kids. And I didn't realize how important that was until I started buying these books that kind of take you through a different person's life because it allows one for you to have empathy and learn about another person's life. Like I was telling Joyce this, I was like, I don't know what it's like to be first lady, but I read Michelle Obama's Becoming <laughs> and I have some understanding of like what her experience was. And that's what books are about, right? Like, even if you are not that person and haven't gone through what they've gone through, reading their stories really helps you have an understanding and allows you to be a more empathetic person. That, and I also want him, uh, you know, both my kids, I'm particularly talking about Caden because he can kind of understand it a little bit more as a three-year-old to just see himself in books and see representation for him to know he has self-worth and that he like as a person is valuable and to understand that through seeing himself in a lot of these stories. And I recently bought one that was called I Dream of Popo. And I don't know if you guys have read that one, but it's all about these experiences that this little girl has with her papa before she moves and immigrates to California. Like she grew up in Taiwan and they talk about going to the playground. They talk about Chinese New Year. They talk about making dumplings, all these things that Caden literally does with his grandma as well, with my mom. And so in reading him this story, he looked up at me and said, mom, is this Caden? Is this me? And I was like, Oh, it just melted my heart that that was the first time he had said to me that that was Caden in a story. And as a parent, like you understand how important that is mm. and how much value there is there. Yeah. Um, and it just, it really was an insight for me that I should find more stories like that. And if there aren't more stories like that, like I should write stories like that. Like I have so many experiences from my kids and just from myself growing up and my sister and, and my friends that I need to put or somehow find a way to put more of those narratives out there so that people can identify with what's out there. I love this insight because when I was younger, when I first immigrated to the States, I remember looking for books of my similar backgrounds, like 
Asian girls. And then I could never find one like that. So whenever I see books with Asian narratives, I get really excited. So I think having more kids books that are relatable is going to be so helpful for other kids who don't have enough exposure or they don't have enough Asian communities around them. Yes, yes, absolutely. And the more I see that, the more I was like, I want to buy these books for Caden's school. And I would love to find a way for my company to like, I don't know, sponsor the like <laughs> more, to more schools um, in the Bay Area or something like that. But, you know, I just, my mind starts to think about how can we continue to kind of like amplify these narratives that are really important for little boys and little girls to be able to see themselves in these stories so that they know like that they matter you know and that their story is important and it's nice when you read something that you can relate to I'm sure even when you guys watch films yeah that have more Asian characters that are like the main characters I know when I was younger there weren't a lot of movies that were kind of American mainstream probably like Joy Luck Club was like one of the big ones you know growing up or something and even that like I balled in because I was like oh my god the relationships that they all had like there was just there was a much larger relatability sentiment for me yeah I hope we see more of that yeah I remember liking Mulan the most because she's Asian yes that was the That's only good. one back then like we can the relate only to. person that could relate to when I was younger I mean like yeah. Pocahontas but like Mulan was my favorite because she's similar to me and yeah you don't see a lot of that so we talked a little bit about you know representation what's like raising kids with multiple ethnicities so what we want to know next is what is next for Jess? Like you mentioned children's books. Are you thinking about creating one yourself? Like what is next? Yeah, I have actually been thinking about this um, just recently, but you know, I would love to write like a children's book, maybe a few children's books. I've talked to my sister about, she's like, yes, do it. You would love it. I'd have to find a great illustrator, but I do think that there are a lot of stories and also like I've just become such an avid children's story reader now that I I can kind of follow the styles and formats of those different kinds of books and narratives Um, so I'd love to come up with a couple of ideas um, and get them out there for for other little kids to experience yeah that would definitely be like a passion project for me coming up we cannot wait to read it Mm -hmm. (laughs) okay I will send it to you guys to, to help me uh yeah sanity check it Um, and contribute your ideas too and they can be my stories they can be like my friends stories they can be your stories like you know I just want to hone into something that I think is just authentic and real and and that ultimately will be the thing that people can relate to and go yes I I went through that too I felt that way too I experienced those things too is what would be my end goal in that thank you Jess for sharing your story today and really inspiring us with the actions and how important allyship is and representation. So thank you for that. Thank you so much. Yeah, I I was happy to do it. And you guys were just so welcoming and supportive in having this conversation. And I just appreciate you just opening up the dialogue to more conversations like this. I look forward to listening to more of your podcasts and supporting you in any way that I can too. So thank thank you you. so much. Thanks for tuning into today's episode with Jessica. Make sure to not miss a podcast by clicking the subscribe button and following us on Instagram, One Real Self. And don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts. Cheers.